I believe very strongly that Bitcoin is financial free speech. If you live in a country where there's like financial apartheid, where you know certain people are more equal than others when it comes to accessing financial services, then then you can use Bitcoin to express yourself financially to to say, look, I I save my money in this particular way, and and that's just how I do it. And then when I want to move to another country, I take my money with me. And I mean, these are all things that it's tempting to take it for granted if you live in in the West, but in many countries like China and India and other places, it's not obvious to move across the border with your money. Hello, everyone. Just kidding. This is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey telling the stories of leaders, founders, CEOs, and people making an impact through business, investing, and entrepreneurship. We take an unconventional approach that leans into thoughts and ideas that aren't often publicly discussed. We'd love to hear from you at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Ford Capital. All opinions expressed by Chris and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Ford Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. Hey guys, it's Chris. Welcome to The Fort. I'm excited to have my good friend Tur Demeester, the founder of Adamant Capital, on with me today. Tur has been involved in the cryptocurrency world for the last nine plus years, and that's how we met. And so we're going to have a great conversation today on um, the cryptocurrency world, Bitcoin, and um, how he's gotten to where he's gotten in the last nine years. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Tur. Hey, Chris. Uh, happy to be here. It's um, it's seven years, not nine years. Seven years. Wish, if only it was that early, because that was the, the creation of Bitcoin, yeah, nine, ten years ago. So how did you come to the intersection of Bitcoin seven years ago when it was kind of non-existent to the world? Well, I think I had been primed a little bit. I had, for example, attended a conference by an organization called the Libertarian Alliance in London. Um and they were talking about, uh, they, they had, for example, Aubrey de Grey, who was talking about, you know, how um, the libertarians think that uh, taxes are avoidable and he thinks that death is avoidable because he was for the, speaking for the Methuselah Foundation, where they're thinking about, you know, how to extend life indefinitely. And, uh, and there was a presentation there by the son of Milton Friedman, uh, and he was talking about these darknet markets with like these virtual currencies, and he didn't know of the existence. I think Bitcoin had just been invented, but he just even didn't know about it. But, but it was kind of this, this subject that occasionally I heard about in these like fringe libertarian conversations, like, oh, what if there was an internet currency? But it was never really alive for me. What really you know, drove my investment interest uh, more, and I think was, was a bigger factor, is just that I was... I was really freaked out about the situation in Europe, like, you know, living in Belgium with all these banks that were teetering in 2007, 2008. Uh, so I was really looking for assets that were liquid and that had low third-party risk. And so naturally, I was drawn to gold and, and, and gold-related investments. Um, and then it was on a trip to Latin America that I learned about, um, about Bitcoin and people that were actually mining and trading it back there. And it was just a fantastic you know, introduction because it was so um, relevant to these people. And 
it was clear that regardless of capital controls, they could use it because it was peer to peer. You didn't need permission from anyone to send the to send bitcoins across borders, for example. Was that the conviction that you had? Because I can imagine, just like lots of things in the world, especially with how rapidly technology is moving, you kind of hear, I hear ideas all the day and all the time in the news, and it's it's really hard in the moment to to believe, yeah, that could actually happen. Um, so a lot of times is we tend to write things off until they actually do happen. Was there something really early on that made you convicted when I would probably guess most of the people around you either had no idea what cryptocurrency was or if they did, had no, um, you know, no belief that it was actually going to happen? Yeah, I remember early on I was, um, I mean, I, I was open because I was really looking for some investments that were out of the box and things like that. But at the same time, I was worried, like, if it's digital, then how can you not just replicate it? Like, what you know, what really makes it scarce? Um, you know, because that's what gold is. Gold is scarce. And so if you're going to create digital gold, it has to be provably scarce. So it took me about four, four, five, six months of, like, a lot of reading, a lot of asking questions to really be convinced that, yes, this is provably scarce. Because I was already convinced that you could have a peer-to-peer network without anyone in control and those kind of things. But yeah, the scarcity, that was the biggest hurdle for me to get over. And luckily, I had some friends that were really well-read in, in the Bitcoin space, so they could like point me to resources that really helped me drive the point home. And then I also talked to several core developers to really kind of just understand and also then gradually learn more about the cypherpunk movement and that that background um because obviously i didn't want to get caught up in some kind of scam and and so in that respect to me it's always helpful to learn about the personal backgrounds of people that are behind a project that that is always important to me so i i jumped in when we first started and i didn't really give a chance to um get more on your background and you meant you just mentioned that you had friends in the space can you just dialing back a little bit, what um, was your life like leading up to this point and what experiences led you to a, a spot where you were sitting at this libertarian alliance and interested in this stuff? I would imagine your life had kind of built you up for that moment. Yeah, um, my interest was for a long time was very academic. Like I just loved um, philosophy of law. I loved epistemology. I loved economics. Uh, actually, more the um, the Austrian band of economics I really loved. And uh, so I was trying to think, like, I want to do something with this. So I co-founded uh, an academic institute. So it was called the Rothbard Institute. We'd organize lectures and and um, reissue books and translate books and things like that. Um, and then I had some aspirations to, you know, maybe try and make it in academia. So I, I wrote this uh, article. It got published. I translated two books. Um, and, um, and so that was kind of where I went to conferences like the one of the Libertarian Alliance, which is also, you know, it's, it's a bit more activist than a lot of think tanks, but it still has that academic bent. Um, I'm trying to think. And, and then the other angle was just like, um, I want to make a living for myself where I'm not kind of, um, tied to the meat space, if you will. Like, I, I want to be free geographically to choose where I live. And so I felt like, yes, I have to make a living on the internet somehow. 
And so if I, you know, writing was a natural avenue that I explored, I did some web design, and then eventually it was like, well, you know, I can do research, I can do investment research. And so that, that rolled into uh, a financial newsletter that I, um, that I started publishing. First it was free, and then later it was a paid newsletter. So when I discovered Bitcoin in 2011, um, I was just about to launch um, a subscription-based financial newsletter. And uh, we launched in like summer 2011. And then from January, February 2012, I officially recommended Bitcoin for my subscribers as an investment. Oh, man. Anybody that took your advice back in 2011-12 is probably not mad that they did. Um, so you, yeah, you... Occasionally, I meet some of the old subscribers. That's quite fun. Yeah. <laughs> I meet them at a conference or, yeah. How many subscribers did you have at that time? I mean, that was kind of early on in the newsletter subscription business. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a full-fledged business, I would say. Uh, it might even, to some extent, might even have been popular back then than now because email was such a big, big medium. Right now, I think there's a lot more channels to share investment advice or, I mean, investment ideas or whatever you call it. Um, and so, but initially, because uh, I was working with a publisher, we had 400 subscribers pretty much from from day one, and we grew to 1,500 paid subscribers, wow. which was big for, yeah, because we were only, everything was in Dutch, so it was only for Flanders and Holland, like a 20 million population that we targeted. Yep. Um Okay, so jumping back, you had said that that understanding the uh, scarcity, the nature and scarcity of Bitcoin is really when you were sold. Um, and you hear a lot about scarcity. Why is Bitcoin scarce? And for somebody that's just getting to know about Bitcoin, why does that matter? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, there's this there's this maxim about money that. Money is scarce, and if it's no longer scarce, it's no longer money. Um, that was my concern. Is like, you know, maybe something starts off being scarce, but then just like, for example, in World of Warcraft, they had World of Warcraft gold in this video game, and the company would just issue these tokens, but then over time, because they kept issuing it, the dollar value just kept going down. And that's the, you know, obviously we see that in all kinds of countries where they just keep printing and then the value gets destroyed. Um, so, so the challenge, the challenge is not so much how do I initially have a finite amount of tokens, but the challenge is how do I keep it that way? How do I prevent users from creating tokens out of thin air? Right. And you would think, you know, if something digital, I can just, if, you know, in like an image, I can just create another copy of it and then say, well, I have two. Um, and and the, the solution for that in Bitcoin is to have a ledger that is commonly shared among all the people who run the software. And um, and then the question is, well, we're going to make it so that uh, every, just like when you're an accountant, you, you just, you can set the rules such that it's not possible to have, um, to enter something that was previously unaccounted for. So you create a closed system. Um, and you want to prevent double spending. So you want to prevent someone from sending one Bitcoin uh, using some software in Asia and at the very same second using that software in Europe, uh, broadcast the same Bitcoin and then get away with broadcasting it twice. So you need a way to reconcile 
to decide like which one of those two simultaneously occurring transactions are we going to make part of the the final Bitcoin ledger, which is the blockchain. Right. Uh, and the the way that's done, you can think of different mechanisms. They're all basically voting ideas. Like, you know, what if we do one IP address, one vote, and then everybody who has the software, they have one IP address and they get to vote, and that's how you decide. But then, of course, that's gameable. You could you could uh, just have a botnet of millions of IP addresses that that you control. And then you can skew the vote, um, so that's not really that's not really great. Right. Um, and then there's proof of stake uh, ideas where it's like, well, you know, if you have more coins, then you have more voting rights. But the problem there is that um, the coins can always be rented, so I can just uh, basically borrow coins, and uh, I can even build up a big short position, then borrow the coins, and then have this devastating vote that kind of distorts the system. And then make a lot of money. So that's that's really problematic to have a to have a state-based system, and it's basically a political system. Like a lot of historically, a lot of political systems have collapsed because of these kinds of problems. And so the mechanism that is really revolutionary is proof of work in in Bitcoin, where you say, look, uh, in order to to have access to voting on on which transaction is finally going into the ledger, you need to show that you burn energy. You have to prove it. And you can actually do that. That's one of the few things, one of the few links between the meat space, the physical world, and the digital world is that you can create um, assignments, these hashes, these like calculation assignments that are uh, provably expensive to calculate. They're very easy to verify, but they're expensive to calculate. And so that's what happens is that these people who run um, the Bitcoin software the more computing power they throw at their efforts, the more they're going to be rewarded um, and the more um, ability they'll have to decide which um, transactions end up in the ledger and which don't. So that's kind of the, you know, the, the, the short summary is that the, the, the brilliant innovation of Bitcoin is not only that ledger, but the mechanism of proof of work to make sure that um, people don't just copy and create the coins out of thin air. And and there's a rule written into the system. Um, I might botch this, but there's there can only be as it 21 million mm-hmm. bitcoins, and, and that was written from from day one as, as part of the the rule. Or, or how how does that? What, what's magic about that number? Yeah, exactly. So you could say, and that's true. Like Satoshi wrote that in that you know uh, it's not the number 21 million is not explicitly in the code, but it it is you know, just inevitably implied in, in how the how the rewards are uh, cut in half every four years. So the first the first four years of Bitcoin's existence, every 10 minutes, 50 new Bitcoins were created, uh, were brought into circulation, and they were distributed to the miners who happened to win that block. It's like there's like a race going on. Every 10 minutes, all the miners uh, throw in all their computing power to try and solve the riddle, the fastest, and whoever is fastest in that moment, they get that reward. It's called the block reward. So they get 50 Bitcoin. And then after four years, automatically, that's in the Bitcoin rules, it gets cut in half. So then from then on, the block reward is only 25 Bitcoin every 10 minutes. Four years later, it's 12 and a half. This is the era we're in now. We've had two halvings in the past, 
Mm-hmm. And so now we're at 12 and a half new Bitcoin every 10 minutes. Um, and then eventually you can see that that's going to trend to zero every four years. It gets cut in half. And that's how you, Got it. you know, if, if you, if you calculate what that ends up at is that the total supply is 21 million. Um, and so you could say, well, I can just change the code. Why don't I just go in there? And I, I, I'd say, I want 48 million total supply. Well, of course you can do that. And that's when you have an altcoin. That's when you have an alternative network. Like if you have some friends who want to mine that coin, that's fine. But those pieces of software will just not be able to talk to the Bitcoin network. Like whatever transactions are sent will not be understood. Just like if I invent a new language like Klingon or something, and you speak English, you just won't understand me. Like that's kind of how it works. Like, right. That's, and there's a lot of confusion around that. Like, oh, can I just change the code? It's like, well, no, because um, there is this, the basis is consensus. Like you need to have the same software in order to be able to talk to the other Bitcoin nodes. Yep. So this is a really loaded question, but um, I'm going to ask it. So what is Bitcoin? And I think I, I ask it because I think it means different things to different people. So maybe the question is, what does Bitcoin mean to you and why do you believe it is um, that you've almost devoted your whole career to the progression of it? Right. So, so Bitcoin, um, Bitcoin is on its way to become a money, which is a, um, a universally accepted medium of exchange. And the way money evolves is, it goes into four stages. First, it's a collectible. Then um, it's a um, a, um, uh, a savings instrument. Then it's a medium of exchange, and eventually it becomes the unit of account. Um, but then, if you kind of drill down into well, what makes Bitcoin unique as a money is that it has has this mechanism that very efficiently converts energy into financial reliability. So anyway. You could say all money is in the world do that. Like gold is also a mechanism that converts the um, expense expense of energy. You know, you have to dig up the gold, you have to refine it. That converts that into financial reliability. But I would argue that Bitcoin is more efficient as a mechanism. Fiat money, in a way, also it converts. You know, you could say human energy, right? Political organization. Um, uh, in a way, the army is backing fiat currencies. There's all these conventions, these uh, um, kind of bureaucratic organizations. So th- th- that's also a mechanism to convert energy into financial reliability. But I would say that Bitcoin so far is the supreme mechanism to do that because it has this, you know, you just go wherever in the world, you find the cheapest electricity, you plug in your miner, and you're literally supporting the financial system, like right there, the moment you plug it in. Um, and that is just uh, unique in terms of how how many men in the middle are removed. Like it's a very direct conversion mechanism. That's how that's how I see Bitcoin. And of course, you know, it's provably scarce. It's highly auditable. Like there's a lot more advantages and, and functionality that Bitcoin has to offer. So uh, in those four steps, um... I don't know if it requires a crystal ball, but where are we in those four steps? When you say it's it's on its way to becoming uh, digital currency, when I think that's a big question right now is when will your everyday consumer be able to use it? Right. 
Yeah, so, I mean, I would say in the eyes of Bitcoin holders, the so-called hodlers, um, it's definitely already a savings instrument. So that's, you know, several tens of millions of people, maybe like 50 million people around the world, they have some Bitcoin. So in their eyes, it's already a, a savings instrument. Uh, medium of exchange, I think it's something much later. It needs a lot more saturation to get there. Uh, and it needs a lot more adoption as a savings instrument first. Um, in terms of where we are for that adoption, um, the last polls that I've seen in the developed world, I believe conservatively show about 5 to 7% adoption. So 5 to 7% of the population has some exposure to Bitcoin somehow. Uh, I think we have to go to you know, let's say between like 9 and 12% to really get to that uh, Windows 95 moment. Um, if, you, if you look at internet adoption in 1995, it was about 9% of U.S. households that had an internet connection. And I think that is really kind of the, you know, arguably, of course, there's, there's a lot of things that you could say, well, Bitcoin is different because of this and that. But at least arguably, if we jump above that 10%, threshold, that could really be the start of mass adoption. Right now, it's still, you know, millennials and geeks and early adopters. Uh, and of course, you know, on, on the investment side of that, that means angel investors, family offices, uh, but like large endowments, large funds, they need more infrastructure to be able to get exposure to the asset class still. Um, so that's kind of where I think we are. I, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, between now and 2024 to see that inflection point happening. And of course, there's lots of global macro tailwinds as well. Like there's just so much chaos right now uh, that could lead to uh, bond crashes, uh, inflation in the developed world, uh, stagflation. There's just so many things that are volatile right now that I think Bitcoin is this phenomenal backup financial system that's that's becoming more and more robust, and that means that it'll be, it's more and more likely to be used as some kind of, you know, hedge or insurance policy or whatever you want as, as, as a liquid refuge for uh, money that's looking for a temporary home. Are the institutions, I think that's been a, a big point of discussion is when it'll become an institutionally viable asset. Um, has that already started or is, is that still in waiting? Yeah, it's definitely started. I think to some extent what we're, what we're seeing now, so we had this big, in 2017, this big um, lemon market really where all of a sudden crypto was all the hype and a little bit like the dot-com bubble where there was just not a lot of good information. Um, there was a lot of information asymmetry and a lot of ignorance among investors about what to invest in. Like they knew this was a great story. Decentralized is the future. We can disrupt and this and that. But um, And so people just bought a basket of things. They bought a little bit of Bitcoin, but then they had maybe 80% of other things in their crypto portfolio. And then when the bear market came in 2018, like all of that melted down. And of course, Bitcoin uh, went down the least and it's recovered. I mean, now it's back at, almost 50% of the all-time high, probably like 40% of, of the December 2017 all-time high. But in the eyes of a lot of investors, 
we're still in a crypto bear market. Like I feel like maybe again with the dot com equivalent, we're like in 2002, 2003, where the market at large is not aware that Amazon is recovering and that Google is surging and that all these, you know, these tech giants that you and I just know today as the the fangs or whatever, that those companies are emerging from the ashes. I think it's similarly that there's just a bit of time that's needed for the market to appreciate that um, Bitcoin is here to stay. And then also some infrastructure that still needs to be built, although a lot has been done, like Fidelity is now in beta, uh, open for Bitcoin custody, uh, Bact, which is um, the company owned by uh, ICE, which is part of the New York Stock Exchange complex. They just launched um, Bitcoin futures. We have Bitcoin options. There's all kinds of Bitcoin derivatives. And I'm really very bullish on the derivative side of things. I think it's very important for price discovery that these products exist. It's going to make the price cycles less violent. Um, It's going to allow for regular businesses who want to get involved in the Bitcoin space to properly hedge. Say if you're a big conglomerate and you you are, a, let's say, a mining or an energy company and you want to have some exposure or involvement in the Bitcoin space, for example, you want to do mining or something, well, then obviously you're not necessarily going to want to be exposed to these extreme price cycles. So you need hedging instruments to do that, just like how airline companies need to be hedged against oil price volatility. So, yeah, I mean, uh, it's still... It's still early, but I, I'm noticing like whenever the price dips, there is there is interest from high net worth, ultra high net worth people to buy the dip, and um, and I think those kind of buys are are creating a floor, and more and more we're seeing appreciation for the idea that Bitcoin may very well be a nice addition to just a, a global macro portfolio where you have half a percent of Bitcoin because it's totally uncorrelated to all the other assets. And it has amazing alpha, like it just has this potential to enhance returns. And of course, you know, I'm excited about insurance companies buying some Bitcoin and it's just a fantastic reserve asset and, and it needs some time. It's only been 10 years. It's just incredible to see how far we've come in that short amount of time. Yeah. Um, in, in going back 10 years ago, at that time, uh, there's a gentleman, I think it's a gentleman, maybe a woman, Satoshi, uh, that nobody, I'm assuming nobody really knows who that person actually is. Is that correct? Correct. What has, what's been the biggest change in what he started 10 years ago and today is, is, is the product still on the original vision or has it charted a different course over 10 years? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So if you look at Satoshi's writings, um, first of all, it's clear that he was aware of the cypherpunk tradition very much so, and that he was was part of it. The cypherpunk, basically it's an email list that goes back to the late 80s, where people started thinking about, hey, you know, if we have this digital revolution, internet, why don't we have a digital cash as well? And and more, more broadly, like, you know, what if we use technology to defend basic human rights? Like with technology, you can encrypt and with encryption, you can peacefully defend your property in the digital space, your intellectual property. And then, you know, of course, now you can use encryption to protect your Bitcoin. Um, 
And so for sure, he came out of that tradition. And uh, if you look at his, you know, the emails and the writings that he's published, uh, on six different occasions, to my knowledge, he referred to um, Bitcoin as, as, as he compared it to gold. Um, so very clearly, that was, you know, uh, he used the term mining, Bitcoin mining, uh, that whole idea of um, increasing the supply gradually, similar to the gold world, is not a coincidence. Uh, there's referrals to Nick Zabel's BitGold proposal. Um, so very clearly, that was on his mind. And then cash, the use of the word cash was also just obviously in, in the white paper was there, uh, digital cash. Uh, that's kind of the idea that it would be used for payments. Uh, so to me, they just they don't contradict each other. They're just part of the same idea that, you know, on the one end of the spectrum, uh, you can have this asset that's being stored and treasured by savers. And then on the other end of, of the same phenomenon, you see people using it for paying wages and, and microtransactions and all those things, just like how money is used, it's especially if you look at the gold standard, like, you know, gold was used for all those things uh, or gold derivatives. Why? So, oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, nope, well, keep going. So, so I, I just wanted to add that early on when Bitcoin was popularized, like in the, the let's say, 2012, 2013, 14, a lot of the people that were excited about it loved the cash idea that it was going to be used for e-commerce. And so like people like Roger Veer and, and uh, a bunch of the early startups were really focused on, you know, uh, small payments and, and kind of bootstrap ideas. Um cut out the middleman, that idea. And I think a lot of those ideas were just premature. Like they were sound, but they were premature because Bitcoin, the, the, the core, the base layer of Bitcoin, the blockchain is a very limited system. It can only do three transactions per second. And it's not a good idea to make the blocks bigger because that undermines a lot of the security and safety. You, what you need to do is build layers on top like lightning, but that takes a lot of time to do that. So I just wanted to point that out, that that part of why people wonder, like, oh, did, did Satoshi, like, you know, that Bitcoin became, did it become something else and what he envisioned? I would say no. I would rather say some of the early proponents, they kind of misunderstood how a system like this can scale. Yep. Does, does that make sense? That makes it makes a 100% sense. I, just kind of a fun question. Why why does nobody know who Satoshi is, and, and is that important that nobody knows who he is? Yeah, um, yeah, it's interesting. It was it was very deliberate that he remained anonymous, um, and I think it's also like you know uh, it speaks to his uh, intelligence and, and and kind of uh, tech savviness that for ten years, even though now millions of people use the software. We don't have conclusive evidence as to who it is. Um, I think that actually probably means that he's passed away. Because uh, if he were, to, if he had been still active, then you know, with like language forensics, or if he would still be writing code, you could kind of compare that. Um, so I, I think that he may have passed away. It could have been Hal Finney, uh, but it's really not certain. Yeah. Um, and and so. Uh, uh, yeah, so so the reason why he wanted to be anonymous was just that he was very likely aware of the ways in which um, private currency initiatives have been under fire in the past. Like there's um, um, there was some experiments with gold backed 
Liberty Dollar and some other experience uh, experiments that were quite harshly shut down by the government. Um, and so I think, yeah, it was probably, and also like, you know, to not make this about him, to really just have it be about the software. And right now I think 70 or 80% of his original code is, is thrown out, has been thrown out and rewritten in a more elegant way. Uh, but the core was solid enough. Like they didn't, they didn't change the constitution, so to speak. They just like polished it and made the software more lightweight and performant over the years. Yep. That's that's super interesting. Um, okay, switching just a, a little bit. Uh, Facebook has come out with a cryptocurrency they're proposing called Libra that's been met with a lot of government resistance. Um, I guess my first question is, um, how does Libra different from from Bitcoin? And then my second question will be, is Libra going to uh, become something or is it going to die at the vine? Yeah, um, so uh, we have a report that's going to come out pretty soon. It's called um, Navigating or yeah, navigating the Bitcoin Reformation. And, and the parallel that I draw in the report is uh, with this era, like the current day era, and the uh, Protestant Reformation of the 1500s, 1600s, which was, that was a time when... Um, Empirical science became more came more to the fore. There was a lot of technological innovation, and the merchant class emerged as as a, an economically powerful uh, force. And then, with that, a lot of ideas um, uh, started to a lot of thinkers started to challenge the, the Catholic Church, and especially the the monopoly that the Catholic Church had, um, the economic monopoly that it had over a lot of services. And uh, really start to question that, like, hey, can't we do that another way? Do we really need a priest for all these things? Like, making, maybe we can do it ourselves. Do I really need to buy my way into heaven? Because that was something that often often happened is, you know, what, there was a way to raise money for the church is to, you know, sell you indulgences. Um, and so um, the way I see Libra is kind of in this context where what we have is this Monopoly, the you know, the international monetary and financial system, the fiat system, which is the central banks and the banks, and then this whole bureaucracy that keeps everything in check. Um, and, and so for 200 years, or at least 100 years, it's dogma. It's just accepted that the government runs money. The government is responsible for money, and that's how it is. And now with Bitcoin 10 years ago, all of a sudden that's like, oh, well, maybe... That's not necessarily the case. Maybe we can have an internet money. And so now here's Libra saying like, or Facebook saying, hey, but maybe we can have a technology company that issues the money. So, so in a way, they're questioning the status quo. And that to me is more important than whether or not Libra is going to succeed. Um, I think the overall trend is like, we're seeing this pushback, which is the the uh, the reformation, and then of course there's an answer from the central banks, which which also happened, you know, 400 years ago. That was the counter reformation, where they're like, hey, but we're not so bad, and look, we're changing, and look, we're we're kind of, you know, we're still the best, and this is why. And so so we're seeing central banks also saying like, we're going to do our own cryptocurrency. Um, 
And so in the case of Libra, it's interesting that um, looking at their the way they worded it, uh, I need to look it up again, but it the composition, the idea is that Libra is going to be a stable currency. It's going to be backed by a basket of assets, you know, and, and the assumption is that it's almost all going to be fiat currency. So in a way, they're competing with the IMF, like who has SDR. So that kind of basket of currencies, um, and, and the, the goal is to have price stability. But then the question is, well, against what? Like, what if the dollar starts to kind of drop in price and then Libra does not? Like, well, and, and there's a lot of questions. But from my reading, it left the door open to non-fiat components to the reserve. So theoretically, they could also add Bitcoin to the mix. And then that's all of a sudden really interesting to have a private currency that is backed partially by Bitcoin. So I don't know if it's dead in the water or not. I mean, PayPal just left, which is a really big deal, I think, uh, especially because the, the, the main guy behind Libra is an ex-PayPal executive, um, right. uh, uh, David Marcus. So that's kind of significant, I think, that PayPal left. Um, so I don't, I'm, I wouldn't bet on Libra continuing to exist, but at least I do think this is important as a signal. Like it, it, there's going to be many more of these alternative proposals and, and stable coins that are proposed and, 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 and asset-backed kind of tokens and, and, and at the same time, I think we're going to see in, in the fiat world, we're going to see more and more volatility where, you know, we've seen it a couple of years ago with the Swiss franc having this crazy rally. And then recently, like the the, the Argentine peso crashed tremendously. And, and I think you know, the euro has been dwindling down. So, so I think we'll see more and more volatility in the fiat world. And then as a response from the private sector, proposals. And of course, Bitcoin is going to just, I think, win out because it's an open protocol. Nobody's manipulating it. It's perfectly predictable. It has the first mover advantage. It's the most secure by far, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of the, the big picture how I see things. That's, you always, you always uh, give a lot of color to your thoughts and it's always super interesting. So my, my question, and maybe you just answered it is, it seems like the government can stop something like Libra, but why can't the government stop Bitcoin? Right. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of, I think, I think um, millennials and younger instinctively get that. If you, if you just tell them, look, Bitcoin is the BitTorrent of money. And we had in the in the late '90s and early 2000s, we had bands like Metallica and other other people that tried to stop music piracy, and it just did not happen. It was impossible because it's a it's a network, and there's a clear there's a clear benefit to using it, and 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 it's very very hard to stop it, very expensive. So people just keep using it, um, and so similarly, there are no headquarters for Bitcoin, like. Of course, there's Bitcoin on-ramps and off-ramps and, you know, some Bitcoin mining that could be presumably shut down. But, you know, miners can go wherever there's cheap electricity in the world, and that means very, very remote places. And then, of course, there's lots of political incentives for, especially as Bitcoin grows, for governments to be supportive of, for example, Bitcoin mining. If you are a small country and you have 
substantial energy resources like Iceland, for example, uh, you're going to have a substantial part of your government revenue coming from just taxing these Bitcoin mining farms. Um, so, so I think that's interesting too to think about the role that BRIC countries could play in, in, in all this going forward where you, you know, it's hard to say no to something that is bringing you, bringing in cash. Um, so, so the best way if the government were to want to try and stop Bitcoin, I think there's two general strategies. Like one would be if to launch something that is also pretty free, but that they control. Um, which is interestingly kind of what happened with the euro. Like the dollar was having trouble fighting gold because right? the dollar wanted to get away from gold. But then um, still a lot of countries were attached to this idea of the gold standards. Um, and especially like I think it was after the Second World War, uh, General de Gaulle in France, what he would do is just he would sell dollars and he would redeem the gold, which you know, back then you still had convertibility and he was draining the U.S. Uh, central bank of the physical gold. And so that's why eventually they just, they cut that. They, they, they didn't allow that anymore. And then the dollar wasn't backed by anything anymore. Um, so um, just want to make sure I, I don't lose my train of thought. Yeah. Um, so, um, so stopping Bitcoin to a general strategy. So, so, so what happened is the, the, the euro was launched as kind of a, a counterpart to the dollar, where then the dollar and the euro, supposedly the free market was fighting, but both of them are kind of still controlled. And then gold was no longer the main antagonist. Um, and then, of course, there was the, there's a whole backstory as to why the gold price dropped over time. Basically, central banks worked together to dump gold uh, onto the market so that it's you know, the private market couldn't bid it up high enough. So the interest in gold dwindled with the price. So what you could try and do is like create some support, some cryptocurrencies that are much more centralized and then pit them against Bitcoin and then kind of try and, you know, build in incentives for regular people to want to hold the controlled currency versus Bitcoin, something like that you could try. Or uh, just in terms of, Attacking Bitcoin, what you could try to do is to insert some malicious code into into the software, which would be very hard to do, but it's not inconceivable that somehow they could try and work it in, and then maybe for a long time it would go undiscovered. Uh, but that I think, and this is why a lot of Bitcoin proponents are saying, look, we at some point we just have to seal the Bitcoin code. We should stop messing around with it, we should just decide like just like how gold is an element in the in the in Mendeleev's table, Bitcoin is just gonna be ossified. It's gonna not change anymore. So then we don't have to worry about these backdoor types of attacks. Who would, who would two, decide that? Well it would just be consensus, right? It would just kind of be a public conversation, just like we keep having now on Twitter and everywhere. Yeah. And it would just be a, a substantial amount of people who's half Bitcoin would say, look, I'm no longer going to upgrade my node. I'm just going to use this last, whatever, 1.5, version 1.5, and that's it. I, I don't really care about it. And, and of course, we're seeing it now. Like It becomes harder and harder to get certain Bitcoin improvement proposals accepted into the source code because people are protesting. They're saying, look, if you put this in the source code, 
it gets more complex, there's more vulnerabilities. Uh, it's it's just harder and harder to get consensus on on the upgrades, and that's how it should be. Because if you want to build more functionality in Bitcoin, it's like it's kind of like in construction, I suppose. Right? At some point, you have to accept like these are the foundations of our building. We're not going to change that. If you want to change functionality, you're going to have to, you know, do it on on the floor that you want it at. Like, just you know, don't don't start from scratch every time over. Just just do interior design stuff or, or just accept the framework that's there and work with that. Uh, and so that's where people start saying like, look, why don't you build a really cool lightning implementation that can do what you think or a sidechain or things like that. But don't try to change everything in the core um, software. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. Um, how, um, how can Bitcoin help impoverished nations or those under authoritarian rule? Well, I mean, uh, I believe very strongly that Bitcoin is financial free speech. And so if you have, if you live in a country where there's like financial apartheid, where, you know, certain people are more equal than others when it comes to accessing financial services, um, then then you can use Bitcoin to express yourself financially, to, to say, look, I I save my money in in this particular way and, and that's just how I do it. And then when I want to move to another country, I take my money with me. And I mean, these are all things that you and I kind of, it's tempting to take it for granted if you live in, in the West, but in many countries like China and India and other places, it's not obvious to move across the border with your money. Right. Right? If you want to move, you might, you might be uh, subject to horrible taxes or it might not even be allowed to, to move it out. Um, so yeah, just on this very basic level, giving people a way to to safeguard their money without um, and, and a lot uh, sorry without having to rely on uh, corrupt third parties, for example, um, and then also with multi-sig technology, there's just so many ways in which you can use store Bitcoin in a safe way with your family and friends, because that's often the problem in these third world countries or um, just problematic economies is that, okay, I cannot trust the banks, all right? So now I'm stuffing money in my mattress. Well, that's very not secure. Right. So then Bitcoin is this fantastic way with multi-sig and especially now we're going to have time locks and things like that and succession planning and all kinds of really intricate, interesting uh, smart contracts. I think that is going to just empower people in an incredible, to an ex- incredible extent. Like it's, it's hard to fathom. Like in the short term, we won't see much, but I think in, in over 20 years, it's just really going to, it's going to be so obvious that, that this was such a revolution, I think. Yep. Um, I'm going a little, little bit on a different topic. So you mentioned December 2017, Bitcoin hit an all-time high. It was near 20,000. It had gone up. I don't. I can't quite remember four, five hundred percent in a relatively short period of time, and then everything crashed. And twenty eighteen was a was, and, and maybe some still think we are, but in, in a bear market. But if you talk to a lot of people within within Bitcoin, twenty eighteen was a really great year for Bitcoin in the sense that the hype wasn't around price anymore, and it allowed smart people to really focus on the product and build an ecosystem around it with various companies. Can you speak a little bit to that? What, what was 2018 
um, good for Bitcoin, even though the price might not have reflected, you know, what it was in 2017? Yeah, Bitcoin's bear markets are always fantastic. <laughs> like, uh, it was the same in 2015, uh, 16. Um, yeah, it's just because there's so much of the noise that's stripped away. There's so much of, you know, scammers go elsewhere because there's no more money to be made. The retail loses interest. Often retail is really hurting because they, they've been suckered in near the top. Um, but yeah, it really is kind of a, it's like, it's like the tree, you know, all the rotten fruit is shaken from the tree. And then what's left is, and also who's left, right? People who stick around, really, they kind of prove uh, that they're in it for the long term, right? Even if the price goes down, they really believe in this. So they keep building. And they, they also have then have less distraction to, to build on, on what's important. And because of the because of the shakeout, it also becomes more clear what assets you should focus on, right? Bitcoin dominance went up a lot in 2018. It went from, I think it was around 30, so that's the market share of Bitcoin versus all the other assets. So in late 2017, I think it was around 30%. And then now we're talking nearly 70%. So so there's like 2,900 crypto assets um, around the world that have been created. Well, they have to... Uh, they have to divide 30% market share amongst themselves and Bitcoin takes all the other 70%. So that makes, that's a very clear signal as to what to build on. And, and so I think that also just price guides uh, the attention of entrepreneurs as well. So, so luckily um, a lot of people switched or um, decided to, to build on Bitcoin. So I had a, a, listener send me a question that I thought was interesting. Um, how will a decentralized currency economy self-regulate factors for which we've typically relied on government regulation? I know you don't have a crystal ball, but have you thought about that at all? Um, yeah, I mean, if you think of it, there's really, you know, if you decentralize the currency, <sighs> It's, it doesn't do away with all the institutions. It just right. kind of changes the way they operate a little bit. Like banks, for example, will have the ability to be much more transparent, right? Because their assets are somewhere on a blockchain, so they should be able to prove what they have. Um, and so, if anything, the the ability to regulate becomes bigger if, if you have a, a more kind of elegant technological backbone uh, versus right now, with with especially if you look at the financial system internationally, like try to send try to send a hundred thousand dollars from China to to the U.S. and and see how that works. Like that, it's a mess. How do you audit that? How do you? It's so incredibly costly. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't think fundamentally a lot is going to change. I think the transparency is going to make it possible to enforce a lot of very simple you know, commonsensical laws such as, you know, don't commit fraud and 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 uh, do what you say that you're going to do. And um, uh, I'm, I'm, it sounds maybe a bit that I'm oversimplifying, but really, I think yeah. that I think that there's there's maybe like smart contracts is a big word. Like people sometimes think like, oh, well, is, is, is that going to like replace uh, the way finance is happening in the world? Like, I honestly don't think so. 
I think they're more going to be like the financial equivalent of like vending machines where, yeah, you press a button and then you can predict what happens. But if you want to work out a business deal, you're still going to use lawyers. Like if Bitcoin is not going to change that. Right. Um, maybe, you know, maybe there's going to be a more lively discussion about the reserve status of banks. Like should bank have, should banks have full reserve or should they have fractional reserves? And that, that discussion becomes more possible as the auditability increases, right? As, as it's more possible to prove what you have, then you can have basically incumbent banks that are like, hey, why don't you go to us? Because we are transparent compared to these dinosaurs who've been around forever and who just want you to trust them just because. Does from like in like a, a peer to peer transaction where there might be like a drug deal that happens over the Internet, it, it, you often hear people can use cryptocurrency to pay for it because it's more anonymous and can't really be traced or tracked. Does Bitcoin promote more? I guess I'll just be transparent with it. Fraud or does it inhibit it? I'm, I'm trying to figure out if it's used for like if it helps criminals or it hurts criminals. Yeah, well, it's it's um it's not straightforward. Like there's pros and there's cons. So for if you are a vendor, if you sell, you you, you have a store and you, you're on eBay or Amazon, or whatever, and you, you sell stuff on the internet, something like Bitcoin is very good for you because uh, you're not exposed to something called clawback risk, which today quite often happens is that uh, somebody pays you with a credit card. And then uh, even though you did send them the widget or the violin or whatever it is, you actually sent it to them, only the customer pretends that it never arrived or that it was damaged or whatever, and they ask for a refund, and then the credit card company just obliges. And so in a way, you have the money for a little bit in your bank account, and then it's clawed back, and then you're facing a loss. So with Bitcoin, transactions are final. So then it's more up to the customer to rely on you know, customer reviews and whatever to then, or maybe pay in tranches or whatever it is. Um, it's more, the onus is more on the customer. Um, and, and so there's a bit more power that, that lies with the vendor. So I think that that is kind of, you know, a lot of e-commerce fraud is, is avoided actually with, with Bitcoin-based um, commerce. And then when it comes to, you know, censorship, obviously Bitcoin is built to be censorship resistant. And so it's going to be hard to prevent transactions from happening in Bitcoin. And also, there's a lot of people working on increasing the privacy in Bitcoin. It, it kind of was this pendulum where initially people thought Bitcoin was completely private. And then the pendulum swung back and it was like, you know, what were we thinking? Like, we're storing all our transactions forever on a public ledger. Of course, that's not anonymous. And then there were these people who got busted and the, the Silk Road bust happened and and uh, and people start to become really wary, like, no, Bitcoin is not anonymous. And then um, a lot of technologists started building better tools to make Bitcoin, to improve Bitcoin's privacy still. Um, and so I think we're going to this place where actually, especially Lightning, for example, is very, very privacy friendly. So I do think that Bitcoin will overall increase privacy. And again, that has pros and cons. Like it means that, uh, it's harder for a totalitarian government to, um, you know, prevent its citizens from, you know, engaging in just regular commerce. Uh, but it also means that uh, people with nefarious purposes are able to move money around the world. It's just, 
it's just the kind of, you know, the, traditionally, as with any technology, like, you know, terrorists can use cell phones. Yeah, there's always pros and cons. So I yeah. feel like it's the same thing with Bitcoin. So Twitter is, I think, has played a huge role in your business journey. And I am always fascinated following you on Twitter. And it's become kind of a theme in a lot of uh, the guests that I've had on. But I just wanted to dig in a little bit. How has Twitter? How does Twitter play like a role in your daily life, and how useful is it to you? Um, yeah, uh, so it's it's kind of grown over the years. I mean, initially I was quite just not using it very consciously. I would like you know have tweets in Dutch and have tweets in English and about different subjects and. And then eventually I decided to just have it be something conscious and focused. And that's also when I started gaining a lot more followers. Um, It's really, it's, it's the, to me, it's the most powerful social media platform. And and that's because it's kind of similar to why I like Bitcoin. It's because it has a very narrow um, format. It's, It's very structured and it's, and that allows for a conversation to happen in a way that's harder, you know, on Instagram, it's, it's really hard to, to kind of have a discussion on Facebook. There's so much noise in your feeds. Um, and so, uh, I, I, I like that, um, in Twitter somehow because of how it's organized, you have these discussion threads that really make it exciting and engaging. And so I get, a, I, I'm able to improve my thinking a lot by using it. Um, and then I feel like, yeah, you can, you know, just like this is a nascent industry. It's, 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 there's no, nobody has 12 years of experience in the Bitcoin space. That just doesn't exist because it's so young. Yep. And nobody has a degree in Bitcoinology or whatever. Like, and so it's all kind of merit based. And so I feel like when I vet people, I always look at their, their background, and I try to find consistency. That's always what I look for is like integrity, consistency. And so in a way, I use Twitter to establish that track record. Like people can go back and dig up my old tweets and and, and, and I feel confident that they're not going to find that I'm, that I'm hypocritical in the big picture. Like sometimes I change my mind, but it, there's no like, um, there's no track record of, of uh, duplicity or, 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 or um, just, you know, uh, saying one thing and doing another. Um, and so, yeah, I, I try to use that in my advantage, but the main reason why I've been using it is just as, as a learning tool. Like it's like, it's like a collection of my bookmarks. I have like 30,000 tweets and, and sometimes I remember a word that I used in a tweet that I sent out years ago and I was like, what was that link again? And so I Google myself and I find that. So it's kind of like a, a collection of bookmarks to me. That's super interesting. Yeah, no, it's, um, I think you're quote unquote, an influencer in the Bitcoin world. It's, it's interesting, um, to see the type of conversations that you can get in. And I find myself a lot of time just reading kind of your back and forth with different people. And I'd assume you do the same thing and, and kind of your journey to learn more about whatever you're wanting to learn about. Yeah, and it's really fun for me that, like, as I've built a bigger platform, that I I feel like, in, in a way, I'm like a talent agent. Yeah. <laughs> like, but I but obviously I choose who I engage with and how long and stuff like that, and so and 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 who I retweet or comment on, and so in a way, I can kind of give people a bump that I feel like deserve to have a bigger platform. That's a lot of fun. I love it. 
the, the, the most liked tweet I've ever sent is one that you, I think, liked or commented on. I, I have to say <laughs> that for the record. Um, um, okay. Well, uh, my, my kind of my last couple of questions um, are kind of what we could expect over the next couple of years. I know, again, not asking for a crystal ball, but um, 2018 was a tough year. There seems to be momentum in 2019. Um, you know, what are things going to look like over the next couple of years in, in your opinion? Yeah. So as I've studied the reformation, I've kind of, and obviously I, it could be biased because I just spend a lot of time studying it. And so I could, I could be trying to overfit here. Yeah. Um, but so what happens in, in, in Europe and partly in where I'm from and, and, the in, in, in the Netherlands, especially, um, was this kind of flurry of activity, and and they had, they had, um, um, it was also the time when book printing became on vogue, and where it became much much cheaper to print and produce books. So the price, the price of a book went from a year's wage to the price of a chicken in a hundred years' time, yep. and so that really caused this explosion of, you know, knowledge and 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 spread of ideas very rapidly, like Martin Luther could have never spread his 95 theses if it weren't for the low price of book printing. It just spread. They had thousands and thousands of copies spread around Europe in, in just a few months. Um, and so, um, and so, but that happened, it was for several decades that there was this kind of peaceful uh, reformation happening. Like a lot of people were critical. Uh, people were writing satires of the church. And the church was kind of like, didn't really know what to do. And, um, and then eventually it kind of came to a head in the 1560s where um, there were these uh, pr uh, Protestant preachers who gathered larger and larger crowds. And um, there was, because of the indecision of the government, there was this idea that it was allowed, that it was permitted. And, um, and uh, there was some vandalism. They started like breaking down some of the statues in churches. And at some point uh, in Antwerp, for example, it was allowed for these Protestant priests to preach in Catholic churches. So that's kind of how far it went. They call it like the miracle year. Um, well, the crackdown started the year after, and there was this horrible, horrific crackdown that lasted for a long time. Uh, but then at the same time, because of that, there was this um, incentive for people to just pack their bags and move. And a lot of people just moved to the northern Netherlands, moved to what's now the UK. Eventually, a lot of that fueled the initial wave of immigration to the US. Um, and so um, that's, kind of the, the, that's kind of the arc that I'm roughly expecting is that right now, Bitcoin is, you know, what, like, you know, $150 billion is kind of a drop in the bucket on a global scale. But if we go like above a trillion dollars, it, it's very possible that everybody's going to feel very secure. Like, oh, Bitcoin is accepted and it's here to stay. And look, we're all doing these things. And like, and it's totally fine to talk about replacing the dollar and this and that. And 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 that's when I'll be mo most worried about a crackdown because then that's a real threat. Yep. Um, and I, I'm not sure if it'll happen in the West first. I think... Actually, China and Asia might be where we, we see kind of a more aggressive crackdown 
than uh, what's imaginable here. But anyway, so that's kind of what I'm on the lookout for is like to to, to be aware that uh, the kind of like, you know, just like with the turkey, like the turkey is like, oh, you know, they're feeding me and I'm happy and like, this is great. And then, you know, the day before Christmas, he gets slaughtered. Yep. So I just want to be aware that as Bitcoin, at some point, it may become a really big threat. And we can see a period of time where there's really a crackdown. But I think there's also a scenario where, um, you know, the government decides they just want to own Bitcoin. They need to own it. And then maybe they'll do like a, they'll, they'll make a transition happen for from commodity to currency. Uh, and maybe they'll do like a one-time capital gains tax or something and then use that to build up their own reserve or something like that. So there's all kinds of, you know, very, very peaceful ways imagining. Uh, and, and again, like that is just down the road because right now Bitcoin is just negligible. There's way bigger worries on political, political agendas than, than this little cryptocurrency. Yep. Well, man, this has been, uh, an awesome conversation. I, I really appreciate you taking some time out of your day to talk with me. Oh yeah. Happy to, happy to help. I'm glad it was, um, it was interesting. I always uh, like to follow your tweets, and I'm, I'm glad that we uh, we see eye to eye when it comes to Texas, right? Yep, it's the, the land of world. opportunity, baby. <laughs> 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 awesome, man! Thank you again. My pleasure, Chris. Talk to you later. Talk soon. Bye. Bye. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. You can also email us at thefortpodcast at gmail.com with your thoughts and comments. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode.